You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I remember one Thanksgiving day when I was still in high school. As usual, my mom was preparing this lavish spread to fill our family and and really anyone who walked through the doors of our house who was hungry. And she would, she would prepare all kinds of stuff. I mean, there, there, was, there was really no limit to all that she had. I mean, she had greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, ram, you name it. You know what I'm saying? She had all kinds of stuff out there. But we wouldn't eat until like 2 or 3 p.m., And I wouldn't eat breakfast and I wouldn't eat lunch as a strategy because I wanted to eat all I could for Thanksgiving. But I would I would hit this breaking point. And I remember this one Thanksgiving. I come into the kitchen and I say to my mom, are we going to eat or not? Now. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. My question The answer to my question was right in front of my face. I could see it. I could smell it. I could hear it. It was absolutely clear that soon enough I would be satisfied. I would have every bit of my desire satisfied. But my question actually said more about me than it said about my mom. In fact, my question was really no question at all. It was an insult. Are we going to eat or not? My mom looked at me and she said, Russ, what do you think I've been doing in this kitchen all day? We are going to eat when I say we're going to eat. Now get out of my kitchen. Now in the story of the Exodus and the rest of the Bible, we see that it's the Lord's consistent practice to throw a big spread for the members of his family and really anyone who comes to him hungry. He is constantly shown to be there for his people, to be with them, to be present. But from time to time, we hit our breaking points, don't we? When our money feels tight, we wonder, is the Lord among us or not? When we face various hardships and setbacks, We wonder, even if it's in our own minds, is the Lord among us or not? When our loved ones are in the hospital and people who are dear to us seem to be in trouble, we ask the question, is the Lord with us or not? Now, the question and its answer, the answer to our question is right in front of our faces. We can see it. We can smell it. We can hear it. It's absolutely clear that our ultimate desires will soon be satisfied. It's clear. But our question says more about us than it says about the Lord. And more often than not, the place from where that question arises, it it, it arises from a place of unbelief. And then it, it results in being more of an insult to the Lord than a question. Is the Lord among us or not? But the Lord brings his own question back to us. What do you think I've been doing in the world? What do you think I've been doing in the word? What do you think I've been doing in your life 
all this time. I will satisfy your desires when it is time. Now get out of my kitchen. <laughs> get out of my kitchen. In our text for today, we have a, a mirror reflection of the journey that we are all on. And I'm going to tell you this. This is important. This whole story of Exodus, it is about the journey of Israel, but it's not. It's, it's about the journey of Israel, but it's not. The most important journey is not humanity's journey to God. It's God's journey to humanity. That's the more important journey here. But we're brought into this story to see again and again the way in which God deals with his people. We're brought into this text today, and there are two points that I want to hit. The question and the answer. The question of the text and the answer. The question of the text comes in the final verse, verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, you might be able to say that it's legitimate to gripe for water when you're in the desert feeling like you're dying of thirst. It's a reasonable desire, right? But what we get at the end of the passage is the key underlying subtext, and it's this. Their question was really no question at all. It was an insult. And the reason why it was an insult is because it was born of unbelief. And what we see at the beginning of the passage, right, the Lord is, is up to something here. Now, here's the deal. Verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages. Listen, according to the commandment of the Lord. It is the Lord that has brought them out to this place. The Lord has architected this very moment for his people. Why? To train them. To form them. You never get strong faith without strong adversities. You know that, right? You never get strong faith without strong adversities. You can't get maturity, patience, growth in faith at a distance from hardship. I know it's not an exciting word to hear. That if you want to grow in your faith, this is what you're looking at. The Lord brings them out here. It's like everything else in life. Weightlifting. Endurance running. I mean, we see that in one of the world's great religions, CrossFit. It's, it's <laughs> you need resistance in order to get strong. You don't get swollen up like Pastor Irwin by avoiding resistance and adversity. I just choose a different kind of adversity. I choose to suffer under the strain of donuts. The Lord architects this moment. Because he has designs for his people's growth. Okay. Verse two. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, here's what's going on. Their response. God brings them out to test them. And what is testing all about? Why do teachers test students to help them learn? The teacher doesn't need to test. The teacher's giving it to the student to help them to learn. They have to go through some things like preparing and studying for the vocabulary and cramming the night before and getting it into their minds. It's for them. It's to form them. Tests bring you to a crisis point where you have to rise up into it. And the Lord brings them to the test not so that he can learn something about them he didn't know. It's so that they can be taught, so that they can be formed. But here's the thing. There's only one time in the Bible where we are invited to test God, and that is in tithing. 
The rest of the scriptures say, do not test the Lord. Testing the Lord is coming at the Lord from a position of unbelief concerning whether or not your present circumstances are what you deserve or whether God's doing a good job of keeping up his end of the bargain. That's where it comes from, the unbelief. Are you upholding your end of the deal after all? Are you even being true to your promises? I'm not getting what I think I deserve. God's like, you're right. You're not getting what you deserve. Everything you got is of grace. So Liz, rewind back. You don't want what you deserve. And fair or unfair isn't part of the equation. We know what fair would bring to us. It's a mercy that God persists with us. But they're testing the Lord, right? And it brings up a question for us. If you look at what's going on, again, what they're desiring is good. It's water. That's good. But here's the question, y'all. And I want to bring this to you in a series of questions. One, what do you do with your frustrated desires? Even for good things. What do you do with your frustrated desires? Do you receive the frustration of your desires as fatherly discipline and training in godliness? Or do you resent it as unfair, less than you deserve? Because after all, you are something special and you deserve better from the Almighty. Does he recognize who you are? There is a disposition of unbelief when that's where it comes from. Do you welcome the exposure of your inner ugliness through trial because you long for repentance and change? Or do you put God in the dock and take up the role of prosecutor? Do you find yourself cross-examining God like you're a prosecutor, putting him on the hook for being guilty of malpractice as God? How do you receive the frustrations in your plans? The frustrations or the temporary suspension of your desires being satisfied. How do you deal with it? How do you view it? Those of us who have children are, are familiar with the idea that sometimes when our kids want something that may be fine for them to want, but we know it's not time for them to have that. We have other designs for them in mind. When they throw in that, you don't love me, or you're mean, or they try to manipulate us in some way, we're always like, really? Really? I could show you mean. <laughs> I don't do that, but I've witnessed it in my home. I'm playing. Y'all know the truth. I don't love you. I'm mean. Shoot, you don't even want to see me. Right? But we give ourselves credit that we don't give to God. And the way that he deals with us, his children. Do you welcome the exposure? In difficult seasons and hard trials, faith says, Lord, I'm struggling, but I have confidence you will satisfy, satisfy my desire in your good timing and mature me as I wait on you. That's what faith says. I will wait on you. And as I wait on you, I will wait on you. I will serve you. Listen. Trials are often answers to your prayers. You realize that, right? My friend, uh, Kevin, retuned a hymn. And it's a hymn by, by John Newton. 
And the hymn is called, I Ask the Lord. And this is what he says. This is what John Newton pens in his hymn. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. What Newton is saying is that when you pray for patience, you're praying for trial. When you pray for growth in grace, you're praying for suffering. When you pray for growth in love, you're praying for God to afflict you because this is his means of transformation in the lives of his people. So don't resent the answers to your prayers that come in the forms of trials. Because he wants to set you free from sin and self that you may find your all in him. He wants to form you. He wants to shape you. Put another way, God does not waste any suffering on his people. God doesn't waste a bit of it. It's all got purpose in his designs. And he works it out for your good. That's what the great eight Romans says. All things work together for the good, for those who love God, for those called according to his purpose. And what is the great good? Likeness to Christ. Being formed into the likeness of Christ. That is the great good. It's not an ambiguous good. The good is that you will resemble Jesus more closely. And that's what he does with everything in your life to fit you to be more like Jesus. Paul puts it this way. We, we are not only people of the resurrection, we share in the fellowship of his resurrection and in his sufferings. We like the first part. But the second part, we're like, can we get an amendment, Paul? Can we amend this verse a little bit? This is a struggle for me. Listen, in God's economy, the waiting room is the operating room. That's where he does his work. When you're waiting for resources, he's at work in your soul. When you're waiting for that child to change, he's working on your soul. And when you're waiting on your life, to, to, to your emotional state, your, your mental health to get where you want it to be, he is working in you. And what you got to do is get out of the kitchen. Get out of the kitchen. Don't come at him with the questions that are born of unbelief. By all means, bring your questions to God. Like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? The how long, O Lord, doesn't come from unbelief. That comes from deep faith. 
that looks to the Lord in honest struggle and acknowledges, I need you to, en- to endure this thing. I need you in order for me to endure this. How long? It's a lament. I see things aren't the way they ought to be. Lord, how long? I'm long. Because you know what? What that question reveals is desires that are aligned to the kingdom. It's desires that are bigger than the psalmist's own little kingdom. Because our desires, our frustrated desires are often so frustrating because we have designs and we want to control things and we want it to be the way we want it to be without respect to what God's desires are, his stated plans are for the kingdom in the scriptures. That's the difference between the two kinds of questions. Don't hear me say, don't ask questions of God. God invites you to ask questions in his word. And it's by asking those questions and moving toward God in your questions and doubts that you actually grow. But beware of questions born of unbelief. As a practice, I want you to start something in terms of how you process things mentally. When you're practicing how to live into these truths, I want you to practice suspecting that God is up to good, even when it involves your temporary discomfort and struggle. Because it's very Western and American to think that if you're not living the dream right now, God could not possibly be up to much good. And we need to learn from the global and historic church. They would say things like, the blood of the martyrs is seed. We're dying, but it's seed for the church. They have a different perspective on their trials. They know that it is two things can be true at the same time. My life can be very difficult right now. And God can be up to good and is up to good right now at the same time. Those things can be true at the same time. In fact, they're always true at the same time for God's people. Even when you're going through hard things, God is up to good. God is up to good. Practice that. When that unexpected breakdown in the car comes and you are tempted to say, is the Lord among us or not? That's where you practice. You say, the Lord's up to good. He's up to good. I know he's up to good. Lord, you're up to good, right? You're up to good. You got to practice that into your soul. You got to practice that into your view of the world. The well-being of the world in the kingdom does not revolve around your circumstances. That is not a fit hermeneutic or gauge of interpretation for the bigger picture. This is the question. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question. But this brings us to God's answer. God's answer. Now, listen. If you want to get God's answer clearly, you got to begin with the text of Exodus and then you got to move on to see what the rest of the Bible has to say about this. Okay? So look at God's answer. God's answer. God knows the question going on beneath the question for water. What's the question beneath your question? Your question may be, well, does the church accept this? Because if the church doesn't accept this, then I can't be a part of a church that... Now, what is the question beneath the question? Is the question beneath the question, will I be loved? Will I be received? And will I be given room to grow? Will I be given room to struggle? Will I be given room to disagree? And will I be loved still as I disagree? Is that the question beneath the question? Probably something like that. The question beneath the question the Lord sees. Is the Lord among us or not? Here's God's answer. 
And the Lord, verse five, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question. God's answer, strike the rock. Is the Lord among us or not? God says, Moses, strike the rock. Now he said, walk out in front of all the people. And Moses is holding the rod of God. Now the last time they saw that rod at work, it was turning the Nile to blood. It was bringing all of the plagues against Egypt and it was parting the sea. And now they're going to see that. In other words, that rod worked to curse their enemy. But now the rod, the authority of God is going to be used to bless God's people. Strike the rock. And every bit of desire you have will be satisfied if you just strike the rock. It's from the struck rock that the fullness of resources for the entire community is satisfied. And when we get farther down the road in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this story. He, he, he wants to help the Corinthian church to have an understanding of, of where they're situated as the new covenant community. And this is what he says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, the cloud and in the sea. All of them, men, women, boys and girls, all the whole community baptized into Moses. And the inference is that you all men, women, boys and girls have been baptized into Jesus. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. And the rock was Christ. You're asking a question today. Is the Lord among us or not? But what God wants you to see is the rock who was struck and from his striking all of the resources poured out for you. The, the, this is not the first time that the people of God saw the same rod wielded for curse that turned into blessing for them. The, the rod of God wielded against Jesus and his penal substitutionary atonement. And here's the amazing thing, y'all. The scripture writers even let us in on this beautiful truth. It says when they accused him and they slandered him, he opened not his mouth. When we open our mouths, it's a poor defense and we cannot put up the facts that will get us off the hook. Jesus could have gotten himself off the hook, but as the black church said, he never said a mumbling word. He never said a mumbling word. He never said a mumbling word for me. One day when I was lost, Jesus died upon the cross. He never said a mumbling word for me. Imagine it. 
He's listening to the false accusations that have been laid against him ever since he was with them back in that desert. It has been one growing collective grumble against him. And yet he opens not his mouth so that he can speak on our behalf as our great high priest. The only thing that comes out of his mouth, he has every reason to grumble against us, but he sings over us. He speaks on our behalf. He's praying for us even now. That's the good news of this text. Christ is the rock and it is from the struck rock that you can be satisfied. Is the Lord among us or not? Everything in the son of God, Jesus Christ says, he is with us. We can see it. We can taste it at this table. We can smell it and feel it. That God is among us. That he has taken up residence in our midst. That Jesus tabernacled among us. And you know what pours out of this struck rock? It was physical water that came out of the rock in Exodus 17. But what pours out from Jesus suffering in our place, crucified for us, is his spirit. It's grace more than you can take on. It's love more than you can imagine. Enough for all of us to be satisfied. It's justice. It's peace. It's not a zero-sum game when it comes to Jesus. More for you doesn't mean less for me. In Jesus, we can delight and what he's pouring out in the lives of all of our community members. He's the struck rock. And you know what? The last, Exodus 17 is not the last time we hear about someone thirsting. All of the signs, it's the fifth word of Jesus from the cross. I thirst. But it's the thirsting not for physical water while having the presence of God. It is the absence of the very presence of God so that you never have to go without the presence of God. That is good news. So let this grace continue to work on us as we struggle through the realities of this life. Look at all of the trials and the struggles as fatherly discipline and training for righteousness. Receive it all as answers to your prayers for growth and grace. And let us persevere in this wilderness and glorify the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.